0: Hello and welcome back to Rich Pickings, Fidelity's asset allocation podcast. The loyal followers amongst you may have noticed that we've been on a short hiatus while we tested a new venture. And this is it. Fidelity's newly launched house view revealed in this podcast, brimming with investment insight. Some things haven't changed. I'm still Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and in subsequent episodes we'll be broadening out the cast list of guests that we have in the studio to talk over asset allocation, where we're aligned and where there's disagreement. This month we're looking at Europe, the political turmoil rocking the region, Italy's it troubled finances, and indeed the very future of the Eurozone. Will it be arrivederci for the Euro? Listen on to find out more. Welcome to Fidelity's London studio, and I'm joined by three of our investment talents. They are Anna Stupnitska, Head of Global Macroeconomics and Investment Strategy, Ario Imami Nejad, a Portfolio Manager in Fixed Income with a focus on investment-grade credit, and Tom Ackermans, Equity Research Analyst, looking at banks, here to give us a deeper view on the sector a little bit later on. Welcome to you all. Now, before we get going, we always try to learn a little bit more about our guests, um, and I'd like to know how practical you are. Tell me the last thing that you fixed, preferably... with your own hands ario uh,
1: i completely dismantled uh, the shower in our house and installed a new one uh, that's about. pretty
2: impressive does it work
1: uh, it does work and it's not leaking so that's a good start. <laughs> even
2: better tom how about you i recently uh, built a, a custom made cupboard in in my house also sounds impressive uh,
0: what, what's it for what goes in this cupboard everything my wife doesn't want to see in the house <laughs> <laughs> a big cupboard i hope uh, and um how about you anna uh, are you practical
3: I have fixed a lot of things recently with super glue, um, having uh, two small kids. So, books. Are they
0: fixed with super glue?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I fixed books, toys, and my most recent one was the toy kitchen.
0: A team. Very practical with their hands and uh, also with their views as well, which is what we're here to, to hear. Um, Anna, let's start with the house view. And um, for listeners who want to follow this, um, you could see the detail by going to fidelityoutlook.com. That's a, a website that we've just launched, fidelityoutlook.com. So, Anna, what are our positions and how have they changed?
3: Across the main asset classes, um, we maintain our neutral position on equities. Uh, we are moderately overweight government bonds on the short-term uh, time horizon but actually we are underweight a little bit further ahead um, and uh, we are um, underweight um, cash on the short-term time horizon.
0: And, and why the neutral inequities?
3: Well, there was a lot of discussion on it actually, Richard, in the room, um, and there was a broad agreement across the board w- that we have seen um, quite a sharp V-shaped recovery in Q1, the best quarter since uh, 2009, after the worst quarter since uh, 2008 in uh, Q4 last year, um, and there is definitely that feeling that the disconnect that we talked about already between uh, the markets and the fundamentals is still growing, uh, so. We we have seen the rally in the markets, uh, perhaps with a positive uh, sentiment relying on uh, some uh, good signs from US-China trade negotiations, the dovish pivot from central banks, um, some further uh, signs of um, uh, China stimulus, but on the other hand, the fundamentals and that is the the actual data we look at, um, continue deteriorating. And actually, our leading indicator um, has improved a little bit over the past month, but it remains in the uh, strongly negative and deteriorating territory. Um, so we think the markets uh, are yet to catch up with reality.
0: Okay. And we should also come clean that this is the first time that Fidelity has had a house for you. So wh- wh- why is that? Why has it been introduced?
3: Well, we wanted to have a consistent view across um, asset classes and we wanted to put all the CAOs and uh, other investment professionals together in, in one room uh, to talk about market directions and our positioning. Um, and we think this is something that is going to be valuable, not just for our investment process, but uh, of course, ultimately for clients.
0: And Harriet, what what does the house view mean to you as a portfolio manager?
1: I think, like first of all, to have a house view is a very great initiative that we've started recently because there's a lot of knowledge and information across fidelity in different teams. And by having this house view, we can kind of distill all that information and form a unified view of the world. Uh, that may or may not be used by all the portfolio managers. And the reason for that is, the house view usually takes a 12 to 18 months view of the world, how the world is gonna evolve in the medium term. Whereas the portfolio managers that we've got, they've all got their different styles. Some of them are value investors, some of them are contrarian. Some of them take a shorter term time view, some of them take a longer time view. But overall, at least it will guide their view of their investment process over the medium
0: term. It's a sort of marker, I suppose, that everybody can, can refer themselves back to. Exactly. Okay. So- all right. Well, um, Anna, let's um, talk it a little bit more detail. You've referred to a couple of these things already, but um, there have been a few notable events since we last met, one being the Fed's dovish tone, so indicating a pause in its rate hiking program. We've also seen an inversion in the US uh, Treasury yield curve, which many regard as predicting a recession. So what should be reading into those two developments?
3: Well, we think that um, uh, the Fed uh is uh, probably not done yet in terms of policy normalization. Um, There's been a combination of um, deteriorating data um, and also uh, external uh, risk developments that uh, have made them perform this uh, Davish pivot. Uh, But as we move through the year, we think the data is going to stabilize uh, and the U.S. growth is probably going to be um, around trend and inflation is likely to start picking up. So we think that uh, this is going to be a good environment for the Fed to consider normalizing policy again as we move into next year. Um, Now, clearly, there's been um, overreaction in fixed income markets. Well, clearly. Um, You think so. I I think (laughs) so, uh, given my view on the Fed and on the US economy. Um, uh, Yields are very low and that led to the inversion of the yield curve in in certain segments. And of course, historically, as we know, as we've heard and read uh, everywhere now, um, uh, this has been a decent predictor of US recessions. Now, it doesn't have to be. Um, a sign uh, or a leading indicator of U.S. recession, uh, but uh, historically uh, it has predicted recessions on a number of occasions. Now, uh, one thing to say is that uh, even if recession is coming and this is a sign, it's not imminent. So we don't expect one this year and probably not next year. But also another thing, it's uh, it's self-fulfilling. I think is if if growth does improve and the Fed does turn and there will be a little bit more inflation in the system, Uh, we are looking at a steeper yield curve a few months from now.
0: And and Arid, what do you think about this? Because, you know, opinions seem to be split um, about this yield curve inversion, and whether it um, really is significant or not. Um, Anna's um, saying it does sometimes predict, uh, but sometimes it doesn't seem to either.
1: I think, as Anna pointed out, the fixed income market definitely seems to have overreacted a little bit. And part of the reason for that is that we as fixed income portfolio managers tend to be a little bit more cynical and suspicious of uh, economic activity in the world. Uh, but out of all the fixed-income portfolio managers that we have in Fidelity, I'm probably a little bit on the bullish side. So I kind of echo Anna's view in the sense that just because uh, inverted yield curves have preceded the last six or seven uh, recessions, and we have to also point out that from the point of inversion to the actual recession happening, that time and time distance has actually been increasing over the years. Uh, we also have to note that, you know, uh, the level of the inversion of a yield curve is also related to the outright level of treasuries. And the way to kind of conceptualize that is that if we look at the world as it was back in 2016, there is a lot of similarity between the world then and now. There was a lot of worries about Chinese growth, whether there would be a stimulus. People were worrying about a U.S. recession. But the yield curve didn't invert. The reason for that was because the front end of a treasury was about, as about 50 bips. So to get an inverted yield curve at that point was very difficult. Now with the front end of a U.S. treasury at around quarter to 25 percent, having a little bit of inversion is, of course, a bit easier. But for me personally, it actually doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a recession. It just means that there are some market participants that are worried about it and are placing their bets that way.
0: So it's psychological. It's psychological,
1: and as Anna said, it could end up being a self-fulfilling thing, but economic data, if it continues to be good, there is no reason for the yield curve to remain inverted.
0: Okay. Um, Anna, the house view is quite negative on Europe. Um, Moving to that now, why why is that?
3: Well, we actually had um, uh, quite a long discussion on Europe across different asset classes. I think from a macro perspective, um, we are not seeing... An improvement or even uh, uh, any stabilization there yet. After a relatively sharp slowdown throughout 2018, um, an even uh, sharper throughout the second half of, of the year. And to me, uh, it was driven by two main factors. Uh, the weakness in external demand, particularly in China, um, and also uh, specific uh, sector and country issues, um, such as the auto sector disruption in Germany, um, which is still having a lagging effect on the manufacturing sector. Uh, So overall, the data looks quite bad. And uh, I think those green shoots that some people are talking about are not yet well entrenched. And we really need to see what happens to the Chinese data over the next few months, uh, which seems to have been a little bit better. It's been improving, yeah. But there are some seasonality issues because the um, uh, Chinese New Year was a bit later this year. If you look at uh, January, February combined data, uh, it was better. And there is a lot of uh, seasonal adjustment issues um, which comes uh, out in March. So we really need to see what the data is like in April and a little bit uh, a few months afterwards to really understand whether this, this positive trend is to continue. Now, if it is going to continue, Good news for Europe and for the rest of the world, in fact. Uh, But for now, we remain somewhat cautious. And I think from here, we can go either way, particularly given this this specific issue that I mentioned um, in uh, Germany, but also in Italy, given political uncertainty, particularly in the end of last year, given the protests in France. Those specific issues are still in the system. Um, That's why overall we remain underweight, European Equities, um, just waiting for signs of uh, some stabilization, uh, and that might be a decent entry point at at some point later in the year.
0: It might be, or if we see bad news coming from China, then it might not. And this brings me to our deeper dive into Europe, which Tom, our cabinet maker and European banking analyst, is is here to tell us a little bit more about. Tom. Uh, Europe, you were telling us, isn't particularly well set up if there were an impact from, from a much weaker China or, or some other um, trigger like that. And that weakness has got structural reasons which you've been investigating and how that plays out on, on the banks that you cover. So
2: remind us of the situation. So I think when, when the euro area was originally created, it was recognized that it wasn't going to be an optimal currency area at the start. But the hope was that as, as prosperity for, for everyone in the euro area would increase over time, it would be possible to form institutions that would bring it closer to being an optimal currency area. Now, we've seen some of those reforms being implemented during during the crisis period. But as we exited um, the crisis, the, the impetus to implement further reform basically completely disappeared. Um, and there are now still very significant differences between... The views of countries as to how to take this forward. Uh, so, and and so
0: politicians we, traditionally don't like taking these difficult decisions until there is a proper crisis to exactly sort it that. out.
2: There's absolutely absolutely no incentive for them to act early. Um, so we haven't got a, a full banking union. There's no European deposit guarantee scheme. Um, we haven't got a capital markets union, we haven't got a European safe asset, we haven't got a real significant fiscal function within within the Euro area. Um, to be s- able to transfer money exactly. around to sort yeah. out um, crises and when it, they might arise. And it's arise. understandable that, that certain countries don't want a transfer union, Germany. but Not only Germany, but um, uh, several other countries as well. But to make the euro area work in the longer term, we will need to find a way that will allow the weaker countries to catch up with the stronger countries. When the euro area was formed, the hope was that there would be convergence between countries over time. And in in fact, we've seen significant divergence over over the last 20 years. Um, And that's something that needs, needs to be fixed somehow.
0: Um, and yes, as you were saying, no real impetus for for politicians to make um, those changes. And the concern is that there are some significant uh, pressures building within the system. If you look at um, Italy in particular,
2: that's correct. I'm, I think on a on a day to day or or month by month basis, it's it's easy to accept that things are kind of stumbling along. We're kind of managing the situation. Government bond yields jump up and down, um, but somehow we'll manage. Um, that's that's a view you can take in a, in a period of relative calm where, while the Italian economy is struggling a bit and slowing down a little bit at this moment, there's currently no real fears that, that the Italian government w- won't be able to finance its debts. The concern I have is that um, if we do go into a deeper synchronized global downturn at some point, um, and it's, it's it's likely that that will happen at some point over the next couple of years. At that point, it becomes very difficult for the Italian government to make adjustments to its budget that will allow it to keep its debt-to-GDP ratios under control um, and that will allow it to, to therefore maintain access to financial markets.
0: It won't be able to refinance the, the debt it has outstanding already?
2: Possibly. Um, as, as we saw in the previous euro crisis, markets can get... Very worried about a particular country's situation, um, and in the case of Italy, they're looking at rolling over 350 billion euros of debt every year um, to keep the country going. If the market decides that that they no longer think Italian finances balance out, then that could could become an issue very quickly. And
0: who's particularly exposed to this? Where are the uh, the banks that? would stand to lose considerable amounts um, if if this were to start playing out?
2: Um, I think that the, the reality is that, that the financial markets are very much integrated, so um, banks across Europe are exposed to this, and there's obviously a question of, of contagion. What happens if, if Italy gets into trouble? What what does the market conclude on several other countries within the euro area? Specifically focus on, on the Italian situation, I would say it's obviously the domestic banks that, that would would face a very difficult time but it's also a number of the french banks with significant subsidiaries um operating in italy um some of the german banks with with very big holdings in in italian government bonds or also local activities um those those would be the main ones and, and
0: ario from an investment grade point of view um do you steer clear of it at the moment or are, you, are there areas that you're you're happy to to take uh,
1: on unfortunately the size of a Italian government bond and Italian credits in the index is so high that European fund manager cannot ignore. And Italy is basically the cause of every fund manager's sleepless nights. And there has been many blow-ups over the years. Uh, Our current positioning is actually more on the bearish side, and we echo a lot of the things that Tom has said. It is definitely true that if European growth or global growth stalls, uh, Italy will be one of its main and biggest victims. And the issue facing Italy is that the bonds are investment grade at the moment, but with more than 2 trillion euros of debt. If those bonds ever get downgraded to high yield, the sheer size of the bonds changing hands is going to be so huge that it's going to be a financial stress sort of situation. Uh, Now everyone focuses on the Italian government not being to get this politics sorted out or the growth sorted out. I think growth is the biggest issue. Now, uh, the people that decide that whether the Italian government bonds is going to get downgraded or not are the rating agencies. And right now, there seems there, well, at least there was a disconnect between what the government was projecting for its growth and deficit number for two thousand and nineteen and that of the rating agencies now over the past couple of months, they have been converging with rating agencies downgrading their growth prospects for Italy to about half a percentage point. Italian government has also is uh, giving um, heads up that they're about to downgrade the growth and deficit numbers as well. So right now, Italy will remain investment-grade, but it's going to be on the cusp of investment-grade. But if the slowdown in Europe persists, it is quite likely that Italian government's deficit and growth numbers ends up being too optimistic. And at that point, the rating agencies do actually have to take some sort of an action, we don't think it will still be a automatic downgrade to high yield because we think the bar for that is very high. They are aware of the political and the market stress that that would cause. But uh, as Tom also mentioned, people tend to react first before asking questions later on. So for us, we are cautiously positioned, but we are very well aware. That, as far as the European politicians are concerned, the European project has to survive. So there will be some sort of an action, whether from the ECB or some some other area, to come and help Italy out of this.
0: So a very wor- worrying backdrop. Yep. But you think that there would be some rescue that would uh, that would keep things going uh, further down the line. Further down the line, t- Tom, what would be the characteristics you'd be looking for then um, in this environment um, when when you're thinking of places that that you could recommend an investment?
2: We look very carefully at kind of banks' exposure um, in in the wider European context, and and we look for banking markets that are fundamentally strong or, or, or stronger than than certain other markets in Europe. Europe is in a, in a way still a very fragmented banking market. So um, you will find very healthy markets in in Northern Europe. Nor- Norway is a great example. Um, where there's a number of very strong banks operating. And then you'll find weaker banks in, in for example, Germany and, and Italy, where um, the returns those, bank ma- those banks make and, and their ability to, to invest for the future is, is, is very limited. Um, so we look for, for pockets of strength combined with um, exposure to the more healthy parts of, of Europe, if you will so keeping
0: a careful eye um, as always uh, and indeed there was um, another bright spot in the meeting um, that uh, we all attended and that came from the real estate team Kim Politzer is a director of European research in the real estate division and I caught up with her earlier well Kim we're standing now in the, the middle of the city of London uh, in the bustle of a glossy shopping mall which looks successful but is commercial real estate a safe bet or can appearances be deceptive?
4: I think there are reasons to be positive about real estate, um, particularly in continental Europe over the next uh, 18 to 24 months because of its income producing qualities. That doesn't mean that we think it's all plain sailing. Pricing is very aggressive in the sector at the moment, so yields are at record lows and um, there is a lot of competition to buy good quality stock nevertheless we think that the pricing looks very attractive relative to interest rates relative to government bond rates and we're seeing a lot of interest from institutional investors for that attractive income yield and also on continental europe we have the advantage that leases are indexed so you also get some inflation uh, protection in that pricing as well.
0: It sounds like it's an attractive um, asset. If you're going to be allocating within Europe, then real estate might be one way of um, of doing that. But hedging yourself against some of the um, some of the threats.
4: Yes, yeah, so particularly because you have that um, secured income for usually at least a five-year term um, with your tenant, and quite often tenants, are, even though they've only signed a five-year lease, are quite uh, sticky to the buildings they're occupying so you've got that advantage of being able to negotiate with them to keep that income stream f- flowing uh, going forward.
0: And what about um, some of the problems that have been in the past where people have been piling in to property generally in a speculative way that's been one of the precursors to trouble in the past um, is there any sign of that at the moment?
4: So the level of speculative development in particular um, is much lower in this cycle than it has been in previous cycles. This is partly because the banks have not been financing speculative development. They've been very cautious about the way they lend to real estate. So they're looking for that secure income on a building and they're not really willing to take a lot of risk if there is no guarantee of a tenant occupying the building when you start the development. So that development funding has had to find alternative sources of capital And that's kept it very constrained, which means that we aren't seeing a massive quantity of oversupply in the market, which is usually a precursor to rents falling and therefore performance really struggling in in the sector.
0: And where are the parts of um, continental Europe that you think are uh, particularly worth looking at? And where are the areas that one might be a little bit more wary of?
4: So we continue to favour looking at the core markets of continental Europe, so particularly France, Germany and the Netherlands, um, because we feel that, given that we're late in the cycle, we want the liquidity and security of mature markets. We are seeing a lot of our competitors investing in places like uh, Spain and Portugal, where there's the prospect of um, some good growth, But those markets are much more volatile and therefore, end cycle, there's a real risk. If you get your timing wrong, you could see significant capital losses if the markets swing very rapidly.
0: Kim, thank you very much indeed. Well, that might have provided some comfort to any investors listening who've got an allocation to Europe. They've got to put it somewhere. Anna, do you think that European policymakers will get their act together and and sort things out?
3: I'm a bit more positive on this than Tom, although it's probably not very uh, hard to be uh, more positive uh, given his uh, baseline. (laughs) I think uh, I have met a number of policymakers recently, actually, who seem to have been more um, optimistic, perhaps more from the ECB side, because it's actually the B, which has managed to put a number of uh, different tools and mechanisms together since the crisis to be able to cope and to support the markets in, in stress situations uh, similar to what we had before. For example, there is a programme which Italy can go into where the terms can be more favourable than the IMF programme uh, in, uh, in the case of uh, market stress or economic but, but, downturn. But I guess the,
0: the question is whether politically they've got the appetite um, to do that.
3: Well, if they need to, they probably will. will. As as Aria said, there is, and I really uh, strongly believe in this, there is a political will to keep the union in place. And as Draghi famously said (laughs) once, whatever it takes. takes. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Tom, I I, I was going to um, end on an optimistic note there, but um, uh, you you also have been talking
2: to policymakers. That's right, yes. I've had a conversation with a a number of them as well. and, And while I think there is always the hope that there w- that action will be taken and and moves will be made to strengthen the union i t- i think it's difficult for each politician to to explain to their citizens why certain actions will have to be taken that might be in in the short run detrimental to to the population of a country but might be longer term positive um for the euro area um and i agree with anna that on the ecb side there is more movement in terms of Trying to get things done. Um, but we we need much more than just the ECB putting things in place. We well they it. can
0: see the bigger picture, can't they? A- and indeed they're responsible for it. Whereas it's the national governments that have got to grasp the nettle.
2: And the ECB is ultimately limited in what it can do in terms of, of policy making. It, it's got its own mandate and it can act through that mandate, but it can't take action single handedly to, to save a country. Still optimistic, Anna?
3: <laughs> i do think there will be reform but it might be in the next crisis
0: well great that's something to look forward to um and on that note it's uh, it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes what would you buy like a hot cake what would you drop like a hot potato and um aria let me come to you first
1: Uh, For hot cake, I'm going to go with 38 German government bonds. Why is that? In my view, that is the only uh, hedge out there that is going to keep its value. Whether there is a European crisis or whether there is a global crisis, there is just not enough of it around.
0: Okay. And your hot potato? Uh,
1: I think I have to go for U.S. equities because I think they've been priced for perfection.
0: Only one way to go then. Okay, and Anna, what about you? What about your hot cakes?
3: Um, I do like the Japanese yen uh, on a trade-weighted basis. Uh, so perhaps versus the euro or the Australian dollar, I think it's a nice risk of hedge, supported by valuations uh, and a number of technical factors, but also uh, the the BOJ, the central bank, not really willing or needing at this point in time to depart from the current policy stance versus other central banks that are turning incrementally more dovish. So I, li- I like this card. Uh, versus uh, any of the major crosses.
0: Jolly good. And what about your hot potato?
3: Well, we've heard this one before, but I'm going uh, t- to pick up on this uh, semiconductor stocks. Um, our fidelity analysts are turning more negative again on slower global demand and an oversupplied um, market, uh, building inventories. This is quite an out-of-consensus calls, uh, but a lot of our PMs are um, underweight the stocks.
0: Underweight semiconductors. And Tom, I've saved you uh, for last, so send us off with a bang. Um, what are your hot cakes first of all? Now let's start with your hot potatoes. What would you drop?
2: Given given the views that we've just discussed, I'm, I'm not a particularly big fan of uh, Italian government debt, so I'd, I'd steer clear of that one. Well, you're consistent. I'll give you that. And your hot cakes? Um, I'll I'll actually go for Norwegian uh, Norwegian assets, perhaps Norwegian government bonds. Um, I think that country remains very well positioned and, and well equipped to deal with. Uh, Whatever it might come to is next.
0: Other end of Europe. Okay, thank you very much indeed. We're out of time. I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation and our new house view. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. I mentioned it earlier, fidelityoutlook.com. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thanks very much indeed to my guests, Anna, Tom, Ario, and Kim. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>